It's like if you sit in gum, you know what I mean? Yeah. Do that quite often. <laughs> <laughs> Proverbially. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, not actually. But. No. no. <laughs> Welcome to the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. I'm Todd Conklin. It's another podcast. Are you excited? I kind of am, actually. Today's going to be fun. I mean, anything that starts out with the uh, discussion of sitting in gum, you know it's only going to get better. I mean, it's the, the thing about sitting in gum is that if that's how your day starts, everything from there on is going to be better. You know, that's kind of the glass half full, but I mean, I do think it's a pretty good way to look at the world, and that's exactly what I think this podcast is about. It's it's a snapshot, if you will, into seeing the world as a glass half full place. How's that? Is that is that a good enough teaser? I think you're hooked now. I mean, I think I got you. So what's going on? Well, um, here in New Mexico, where I am currently, the weather took a turn. So I... We, we had enough psych out kind of warm weather to make us think that it was going to be nice. But the whole like North America has just gotten pounded the last couple of weeks. It's been crazy wherever you are. If you're globally located in other places, you, you may not know this, but it's just the weather's been nuts. But it's been, these little bits of niceness entice you to believe that it's going to be really nice forever. And then Mother Nature, who, by the way, always bats last, always wins, uh, smacks you with a big old cold front for a, a long time. That's where we are now. And so, you know, kind of trapped in the house, even though don't want to be trapped in the house, that's uh, that's kind of the way things are happening. And kind of looking forward towards the future, because the future is... Um, filled with lots of interesting opportunities to see people. So that's good. I mean, I think that's a, a really good way to do that. It's interesting to watch the world around us, and it has been the last – and you guys need to help me remember this because I think it was probably as interesting before the whole pandemic happened, but now everything seems so interesting. Watching international banking – go through this big system blip is is certainly giving me pause and is worth watching. And then all the geopolitical crap that's happening in the world, it's just, it is a world truly filled with uncertainty. We talk about VUCA, and if you don't remember VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, that's the big VUCA suite. We talk about a world filled with those things. And then we get to go out of our little office doors and live in it. And it's really encouraged. It's encouraged me. I don't know how you feel about this, but I really look at at things now with a keener eye towards understanding the potential capacity for stability, which is uh, you know, that's the stuff we've been talking about for 10 years on this podcast. I mean, it's it's been a long discussion, except now we're kind of living in the middle of it. And, and maybe a, a, another way to say that is is we're getting lots of opportunities to apply these ideas in lots of parts of our lives. And probably you guys, that existed earlier. I, I mean, I wouldn't be too 
surprise to find out that it existed earlier. It's just that the awareness to it is is just much different. And you've probably seen it with your organizations too. Is the 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 thing about uncertainty is that it's uncertain. We've said that a million times. The crazy thing about uncertainty is that it really requires a lot of capacity. And so the the way you manage uncertain outcomes is with certain controls. And so now the emphasis on building that capacity, having that that reservoir, if I can use that word, I like that word very much, that reservoir of excess ability that you can tap into anytime you need it becomes a really important part of uh, the discussion. The challenge is, is that nobody, and I mean nobody, uh, and I truly mean nobody, I've not found the person yet, knows how to measure it really. And I, and I do think that's the big shift kind of the world is going from hard physics-based metrics, you know, we can look at that and measure it to the nth degree. And and that I think works really well in linear systems, but it's moving to much more of a monitoring system. So we're moving from sort of hardcore metrics to to gas gauges. God, I have about a third of a tank. I, I probably need more before I go on this big trip. Oh, my tank's full, so I'm good to go. That you know that kind of idea, and and that's um that's a pretty important idea, and and you're seeing it everywhere. So that that's a part of it as well. If I can get through this weather, I think I'll make it. I mean, it, it feels like I'm going to make it, and I'm definitely looking forward to it. Well, you know what I miss more than anything? Zooming around on my bicycle. I did get to do it a little bit the last couple of weeks. That's been fun. And Bob Edwards, our buddy Bob Edwards, is now the proud owner of an e-bike ask him about it because he should by now have some stories because uh during the celebration of bob and we did have a celebration of the bob uh which was a really fun thing to do one of the little gifts that were a part of his celebration was he was gifted an e-bike because he would never buy for himself in a million billion years but if you give it to him, then, well, then he has it, right? I mean, then that's a part of it. And the interesting part about giving Bob an e-bike is that he had to be in charge of shipping. So it was kind of like, like giving somebody a fish for a birthday present. You know what I mean? It's, it's a great gift, but it has with it a tremendous amount of long-term responsibility. That's kind of what it was like to give an e-bike. It was a great gift, and then he had to ship it home. And I think the shipping costs, well, it costs more than I thought it would. And I think it costs way more than he thought it would, which made the gift even more fun to give. So that was a fun part of what happens. And now we're just kind of trying to figure stuff out and see what's ahead and kind of move forward and make things happen. That's that's always the goal is to make things happen, which leads us into today's pod. So you're going to meet a friend, and I think you're going to enjoy this conversation greatly. He comes from the uh, energy sector, from oil and gas, long-term experience, um, lots and lots of depth of knowledge, and his name's Richard Light. And you're going to like Richard very much because I wanted to talk to Richard for a couple reasons, but mostly I wanted to talk to him about the journey he has been on and give us, that's you and I, the opportunity to sort of listen to Richard's journey so we can kind of pulse our own journey. And it's a pretty good way to do some comparison and contrast. And plus, Richard's clever and interesting and funny. And he was told by his coworkers that if he gets on the podcast, he will be too much to handle. 
So it seemed like the perfect opportunity to create somebody that would be too much to handle. And actually, when you hear Richard, he's probably a lot to handle anyway. But this is a, a, is a great conversation. Sit back and listen and think as you're listening, this is one person's journey. This is Richard Light's journey. How similar is it to the journey you've been on? That, that's the cool part of the podcast. So without any further fanfare or flourish, let's listen carefully to a conversation between myself in the back of a conference room in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Richard Light on the story to understanding a new way to perceive, manage, and operate safety in high-risk industry. Yeah, so... Are you enjoying the conference? It's such a treat to have you in the conference. Oh, this is a blast. This is, this is all the pent-up things that I've been wanting to do and ask and things to follow up on since we first met in oh, the man, Conoco fun, meeting really? in 2014. How fun. So. I mean, that, that makes a huge difference. You're, you've been on this journey a while, for sure. Personally, I have, yeah. 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 What do you think about all of this? Um, is, is the, is the uh, juice worth the squeeze, maybe, is a good way to ask that question. It definitely is. Um, for me, what really made sense when we first met, if you don't mind me going back. No, oh, take it away, man. We got no rules. Uh, well, no, we're not saying your girl. Don't talk uh, about I'm not allowed you. to say my girl. I had one of my girls go get us coffee. Well, I'm Australian. I'd have to say the missus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there you go. Um, where I was working was a large oil field service company, and... I'd started to get frustrated by accountability. It, it just really seemed like we were blaming the victim. Um, you know, we had a guy who worked for 40 hours straight on a rig, and then it was in the middle of February, it was cold, he hopped into a, a warm pickup truck, and it only took him a mile to fall asleep and roll it. And the management team said... Well, he's been a great employee for 12 years, but he broke the journey management rules. He, we have to terminate him. And I'm going, well, you really don't, because which one of you fellas was the one that let him work for 40 hours without a break or mm-hmm. a backup or, or somebody question. else? How'd that go? Um, a lot of people pointing at each other because yeah. they'd moved to a siloed system, and while it was more efficient, there was really no one in charge yeah, of those decisions. So. That's amazing. And it just seemed... There was a series of things like that that kept occurring and kept occurring. And initially, when they'd redesigned their health and safety system back in '96, they had used like the airline no blame culture, where you wouldn't get in trouble for saying what happened. And that changed over the years, and accountability became a weapon. Yeah. And you know, and I was frustrated by it because I said to all the managers, I said, "Well, who here?" has had enough sleep last night. And if you haven't had enough sleep and you've driven to work, then, you know, when something happens, I can point to the fact that you've broken the um, circadian rhythm rule or the maximum work hour rule. And so we were all operating in a degraded system. That's so interesting. And and that's really, that's kind of when you started to really question the traditional paradigm and move beyond that. Yeah, and... You know, we were in that Conoco meeting and you and you sort of said, uh, you know, a lot of this is due to systemic failure. We're putting our workers in a situation where we're setting them up to fail. Right. And it was probably the 
and I'm not pandering to you because you're standing in front of me, but it was... But a little. Uh, just slightly. <laughs> <laughs> but it was probably the most compelling meeting I'd been in, you know, just when, you know, somebody dropped, did the mic drop and walked out, and you're going, you know what? That makes sense. So then, you know, I spoke with my boss at the time, and we said, hey, we, this is something. We really should try to do this. And um, we got caught... In trying to make the change in a really large organisation that, you know, I kept being... I use a direct approach, you know, um, so mostly. It right. works mostly for me. I agree. It's how I was taught, you know, to manage. And yeah, I agree. So, but I kept hitting barriers and I was never able to successfully convince enough people or the right people to implement. So... I've continually thought about it in different roles I've had. And when I moved to a smaller service company, uh, I came in as the vice president of HSEQ. And a lot of the guys had come from the larger service companies. Right, right. Um, the interesting thing we talk about is we know the right things to do. We know the processes and the systems that we were taught and we managed under under the larger organisations. But what we lack is either the, the critical mass or the resources to implement something so large. So you have to learn patience and you have to learn to implement these things over a longer period of time. And, and iteration. You have to repeat stories, repeat. You do. They ask the same questions a lot of times. You have the same conversations. And, you know, you keep saying the same things in executive meetings with the leadership team. Talk about blue line, black line, failing safely. Like, we do a safety moment at the start of every meeting, and mine are a little bit more esoteric. Right. Uh, it's not um, don't play with sharp sticks and, right. you know, watch out for cars on the road. I We talked about um, confirmation bias in the last one. Oh, that's one. great, really. And just trying to, okay, you're going to buy a new car, you want to buy a new blue BMW, I think, was the example. So all of a sudden you see blue BMWs everywhere. It's true. It is. And so we talked about the context in um, when you're investigating, when something happens, that you tend to fall back on your own right. theories of what you believe and ignore the other evidence. And it's classic. We see it every time. You know, the first report of an incident, everyone's going, oh, my God, those idiots. And then when we stop and we get into it, and maybe you say that internally on your internal voice, very rarely you say it externally. But when you look at the incident as it evolves, it's never what you thought it right. was. Yeah. Yeah, the first report's always wrong. Yeah. And that, that's history. Richard, introduce yourself because I, I want to know how you craft your description of yourself. Myself? Yeah. Um, I'm from Melbourne, Australia. One I, of my favorite cities in the world, just uh, in case you're The you're most wondering. livable city in the world. I kind of agree. Except if you've got to buy a house. Yeah, I wouldn't want to <laughs> have to buy a house. Ooh, here. Expensive. Um, I studied mechanical engineering, then did postgraduate management, and I applied for a one line to a one-line ad in the Melbourne newspaper that said field engineers wanted. And I interviewed with the company. They liked me. I liked them. My first day in job, they threw me on an airplane and sent me to the southern highlands of Papua New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, what the hell have I done? <laughs> so, um, and I, I logged oil wells. I learned to log oil wells. Um, and it was a very regimented, really f great training program that we go through. And it's a little bit, I thought, militaristic is, you know, promotion by performance. You do right, this, you right. get on. 
but I really loved that and thrived in it. Um, took management position as a field manager, managing operations. And then what they do was really revolutionary. As you progress, you go from an operations role to a support role, to operations support. So I was in Thailand running operations for logging and drilling. And then, then I had a visit from the vice president of health and safety. And I go, I don't know why the vice president of health and safety is coming to my little base in the north of Thailand. And we'd... We'd simplified the safety reporting cards. They were four A4 pages long in oh English. The majority of our workers were Thai, right. didn't speak English. So we reduced it to a card that they could put in their pocket. And we just said, put your name on it and a description of what happened. That's all we want. Oh, that's perfect. And so that was really the start of that. And they'd seen this somewhere. Someone had brought them over and they wanted to meet the, um, the crazy guy who'd done this. And <laughs> So we reorganised and I became the health and safety manager for the Southeast Asia, Asia region. Used to cover from Bangladesh to Vietnam. Yeah. Um, it really, it challenges, when you're working outside your culture, it challenges how you manage and what your value systems are. You know, working in an ascriptive society absolutely. versus a performance-based yeah. society, how people are motivated. And you learn pretty easy that there's more than one way to do something. Yeah. After that, I did mergers and acquisitions, ran a business we bought. Then I went in to do client support for a very large Australian company. Um, we grew that business a lot. and But a lot of that focus was on safety and quality. Right. Um, then I went to Sumatra in Indonesia and then to um, uh, back to the US as the vice president for health and safety for that organisation. Did you vacation in Lake Toba? Uh, I didn't get to vacation much at all when I was working really? overseas. Really? Because it's the deepest freshwater lake in the it world. It is. It's beautiful. I've been there. I've been to Madan. But, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm lucky. My wife uh, speaks multiple languages. And oh, that's perfect. So she was she was our unofficial marketing and uh, sales and support department many times. Oh, that's so great. It's been, it's been great experience for the kids and myself. We've dragged them all the way around the world. Oh, that's so good. But you have to have a family that's really supportive yeah. to do that. But it's a unique experience. And you get telling stories and you start getting a little bit self-conscious because um, they're unusual. Like the stories you tell, yeah, it's, you know, they seem too good to be true. Yeah, they seem kind of braggy. You, you feel kind of bad telling. I, I, I completely understand. What, what do you think, if you could give a hint to somebody just starting this journey, kind of in an organizational role like you were, what, what, what have you learned that you wish somebody would have taught you? That's a pretty deep question. Um, oh, I'm, I'm filled with them. I just, <laughs> as I said, you, top of the head, right there. Um, probably not to be fixated on lagging indicators. The, the, you know, many times KPIs are driven that way, right. and we fixate on the injuries. And to be honest. Once the injuries happened, our control systems have failed, and I'm really not that interested in the, the incident. I want to make sure the I person's looked after. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'm more interested in trying to stop the failure from happening again and from a systemic approach. Um, I would also tell them to stop blaming the worker. That's a big, so big how, one. How, how, what do you think the secret sauce is? To get them to stop the blame? Um, it's, I use, I just 
point things out logically. I look and said, well, somebody had said when you make the statement out loud, it doesn't really sound that smart. Yeah, exactly. And when you start saying, okay, so the guy's job is to drive the um, uh, skid steer in reverse for two miles a day and you're surprised with no visibility something happened. Yeah, exactly. Um, and when they stop and say, well, yeah, when you put it that way. Um, the other thing is the no-blame culture I still like. Unless somebody is criminally negligent right. or a sociopath, um, the big thing is that mistakes happen and that errors occur and to not punish people for those. And sometimes you have to sit down with an operations team or, or other people and go through the process and explain and the context. And, well, did they intend to make that decision? Well, if not, then how did they arrive at that point? Do you think we'll ever get there? I'm stubborn. Good for you. Um, <laughs> I don't see any other way to do it. Um, you know, in, in my organisation, the interesting thing for me is when I start to hear the terms I've used, the hop principles, start to be parroted back to me yeah. from the field and you start to think, okay, people are listening, they are understanding and we'll get there. The, the next stage for me, I think, is to take everything we're learning here and distill it out and work out how we can implement it in our organisation, what it looks like for us. And, you know, just some of the conversations we were talking about, one of our biggest risks is driving. And it's really difficult to put yeah. the controls in place with a lot of the external influences. So the example of... And I'd worked as a, a test engineer at General Motors... Oops, shouldn't have said them, but anyway. Oh, that's at the, they, they, don't they don't mind. Doing the crash testing. So, and that was really informative to see that and understand that. And one of the chief safety engineers had said to me, we design a vehicle from the perspective that 100% of the people are going to crash. And when you take that perspective, you start to yeah. position people with pre-tensioning seatbelts, anti-submarining seats, um, airbags, and... It's looking at that capacity for our organisation and seeing how we can come up with those non-brittle right. systems. Thanks for your time, man. This was great. Oh, no worries. I appreciate it. Oh, no. We've had, we've had a lot of fun. But, uh, and, and it will continue. All right. Thanks, Todd. Thank you, my friend. All of it. All right. Every second of it. So that's the pod. What do you think? I told you. So first of all, he's, uh, Richard's a super interesting guy. So he's got that going for him. And when you go into a conversation with that as your lead, it's going to be good. There's no question about that. But it was so much fun just to talk to him about kind of the journey he's been on. I, I find those conversations stunningly interesting. And here's why. We're all kind of in the same boat. I mean, it's a big boat and it does a lot of different things. But it's so interesting to me how everybody kind of struggles with helping organizations move forward. And it's kind of perplexing. I don't know if you've thought about this very much, but I'm not sure why change is so hard and why we hold on to old ideas. My guess is, and it's just a guess, is that it's fear of, of 
letting go of those notions. Because if we stop doing what we've always done, then the system is probably going to feel like it's out of control and could potentially get way worse. Nobody wants that. However, what we know is that when we stop doing things the old way, and the old way is pretty easy to sort of encapsulate, if we stop treating workers as if they're the problem and start understanding that the workers really are the solution, and we see it all the time, we see it in everything we do, then what happens is that change happens. But that initial jump is pretty stinking scary. And there's lots of people with vested interest and sunk cost. They're committed to this. They're not gonna, I'm not going to change because change is hard. Even change for the better is hard. And we know that because we're all going through it right now. I'm personally in the midst of it all the stinking time. It's, uh, it's an interesting part of the journey upon which we all are traveling. The big journey. So that's fun. Uh, wasn't it a good time? It was a good way to kind of hang out. I'm glad we got to spend some time together. It's always a good time. Tell your friends. It's, um, it's amazing to me that the podcast just continually grows. I, that perplexes me as well. Man, today's the day I'm going to be filled with perplexing things. But I'm glad it does. It's kind of fun. It's just our time. It's a little time to get together and, and shoot some ideas out. Hopefully this is controversial too. <laughs> I like it when they're controversial because when they're controversial, that makes it even more fun. So until then, that's the pod. Learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be good to each other. Be kind. Check in on one another. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. <laughs>